Well, a few years ago as a student, I had a bizarre experience. As I was walking from my college to the center of the town, uh, I was uh, not particularly aware of what was happening to me at the time. That's not very unusual. Uh, but I suddenly saw two large policemen in full bulletproof jackets running towards me. Now at that time, I didn't have a beard, so I thought it was unlikely that I was mistaken for a terrorist. However, before I had time to think, the two policemen had already reached me and they were running past, having completely ignored me. So in a bit of confusion and curiosity, I turned round and I saw the unmistakable face of Queen Elizabeth II in profile, driving past about 10 meters away from me. Uh, and I also saw a small army of other policemen and a completely vacated street. Uh, so I learned I should probably pay a little bit more attention to things in the future. And also the Oxfordshire police force may not be that effective. Now, that day, I had a passing glimpse of majesty. Yet, after a short moment, and I processed what had happened, well, I just turned around and carried on my way. You seeing my queen didn't really change me. In fact, the only thing that I recall happening is that it reminded me that I need to go buy some stamps. So, true story. However, this was not true for Isaiah, because in the year that one king died, King Uzziah, Isaiah had a spectacular vision of another king, the true king, in a vision that completely changed his life, that started his prophetic ministry, and that has ultimately shaped world history. So let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, in the context of the death of a long-reigning monarch, Isaiah had a vision of the Lord God in unparalleled majesty, sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Incredible angelic beings surrounded the throne and were singing a song of eternal praise. The whole house shook and filled with smoke, so that Isaiah was filled with despair. In the presence of the holiness of God, Isaiah had a sudden and powerful inward awareness of his own sin. And so he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
I am undone. It's a complete collapse. Yet this intense psychological trauma wasn't the end of Isaiah, but actually marked the start of his prophetic ministry, as God commissioned him to proclaim a special message to the people of Israel. But to properly understand that message, we need to step back a little bit and understand the context up to this point. From Genesis 1, we know that God created all things, including man in his image, and that creation was good. In Genesis 3, we learn that man rebelled against God's loving rule and sought autonomy instead. This rebellion towards God is what the Bible calls sin. And the effect of sin is exile from God's presence and the curse of death. However, even in his condemnation and the proclamation of curse, we saw God's gracious promise to restore his fallen creation through the offspring of the woman. The rest of the Bible is the gradual unfolding of this promise in world history as God seeks to reverse the curse on creation and bring about blessing. So, before we jump to our next passage, we need to quickly sweep through the major turning points in God's salvation history before Isaiah begins to prophesy. Can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Well, the first major turning point is in Genesis chapter 12, when God made promises to a man called Abram. God called Abraham to inhabit the land of Canaan and promised to make him into a great nation and to bless him. Furthermore, in blessing Abraham, God intended to make Abraham a source of blessing, telling him, in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this means that the history of Abraham and all of his children and offspring is incredibly significant because it is the first stage of God's plan to save people from every nation, including Malaysia. So the history of Abraham's family is meaningful to us. But Abraham's family did not experience blessing for a very long time. For 400 years, they suffered as slaves in Egypt, being afflicted with great oppression, until finally God rescued them in a mighty act of deliverance known as the Exodus. God, uh, Israel was saved, they were set apart, but all of this happened for a purpose, to function as God's means of bringing the Abrahamic blessing to all the nations. Israel was the vehicle, the means of God's salvation eventually to all the nations, including Malaysia. And it is for this reason that Israel had to obey God and be distinct from all of the other nations. If they were disobedient, they could not function as his mediator. And so in Deuteronomy 28, God spelt out the consequences of obedience or disobedience to the covenant that he made at Sinai. So let's have a quick look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. This is what he says to Israel. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then we read loads and loads of blessings. But if we go to verse 15, we see, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, 
or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall overcome you and overtake you. The essential meaning, the essential context is very, very simple. God called and saved the nation of Israel as a means to fulfill his wider goal of saving the world from the curse of sin and death. However, their status as God's means of blessing was conditional upon their obedience to his covenant. If they obeyed, then they would receive blessing and they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. If they disobeyed, then they would be cursed and ultimately driven out from the land by the nations that they were supposed to bless. This is the key theological foundation upon which Isaiah is built. God covenants with his people at Sinai. If they obey, they receive blessing, and they will be a blessing. If they disobey, they will be cursed. So now let's see what the opening verses of Isaiah say to see whether they are encouraging. Have a read of Isaiah 1, verse 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up that they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. See, all of the created order here, heavens and the earth, is called to bear witness to God's complaint against his people. Israel has rejected God. They have broken covenant. And it is for this reason that Isaiah was commissioned as a prophet to act as God's covenant prosecutor to convict Israel of their guilt and to proclaim the certainty of covenant curses. They have disobeyed. They can expect curse. Israel ultimately will be exiled from the land as part of the curse and as a consequence of their disobedience. Now, if we read Isaiah, the message of curse upon covenant breaking is chapters 1 through 35. Chapters 36 to 39 is uh, like a historical narrative that anticipates the coming of the exile. And 40 to 66 is looking beyond the exile to an eventual restoration as God works to save his people from their sin and eventually all nations in an act that is greater than and surmounts the exodus. As God saved his people through the exodus, Isaiah is looking forward to a day when God is going to save his people in a more dramatic occurrence. However, because Israel had rejected God and fallen under his curse, they could no longer act as God's means of bringing salvation. They are disqualified by their sin. So in their place emerges an enigmatic figure called the servant of the Lord. He is the focus of, of four servant songs, of which our passage is the fourth and final. And so to understand its riches, we need to examine it line by line. 
So would you turn with me to Isaiah 52 and look at verse 13. Have a quick read of that. We are told that the servant will act wisely and that he shall be high and lifted up. Now that is a truly remarkable description because we have actually just read those two words together before. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6? In that chapter, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And actually, if we kept reading Isaiah, we encounter those two words together again in chapter 57. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So in the context of Isaiah's writing, Isaiah could not use a more exalted, a more holy description of the servant. Because the servant shares the very same attributes, the very same descriptives as the Lord God himself. However, given the exalted description of the servant... The following verse is a jarring juxtaposition. It's like driving your car in third or fourth gear and then suddenly shifting it into reverse. There's a clanking, the gears are going to fly out, you're going to have a messed up car. That's what's happening. If you read verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The high and exalted servant of, of the Lord God produces astonishment. Yet this is not the astonishment that Isaiah experienced when he was overwhelmed by the majesty and by the holiness of God in his temple. No, this astonishment is produced by the grim disfigurement of the servant. His appearance is so marred, it is not recognizable as human. His form is more grotesque than anything that has been seen in the children of man. For this reason, the servant shall startle many nations. The word sprinkle can also mean startle. And kings shall shut their mouths in shock at his repugnance. This is the astonishment that the high and exalted servant produces. And this revelation of the servant is so shocking that it prompts the rhetorical questions in 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that phrase, the arm of the Lord, is used in the Bible as a metaphor for God's mighty power to save his people. Those of you who were with Smack in the last year, we studied Exodus. Do you remember Exodus? How did God redeem his people? With an outstretched arm and with great acts 
of judgment. If we were in Isaiah and we flick back two chapters to 51 verse 9, we would see, Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord! Awake! As in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Egypt into pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? The arm of the Lord accomplished the awesome deeds of redemption that saved Israel from Egypt. It was the arm of the Lord that cut that superpower into pieces and pierced that dragon of the ancient world. It was the arm of the Lord that plagued that nation with flies and gnats and hail and pestilence and darkness. It was the arm of the Lord that divided the waters of the Red Sea and made a way for the redeemed of God to pass over in a dramatic intervention in nature. It was the arm of the Lord that brought those waters crashing down on the pursuing army of Pharaoh, utterly obliterating God's enemies. In Exodus, the arm of the Lord accomplished salvation in a public display of magnificent and terrifying power. And in Isaiah, we are led to anticipate a far greater act of God as he restores his people from exile. Just turn your eyes to 52 verse 10. This is immediately before our servant song. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So in the immediate context of this song is the public demonstration before all nations and ultimately for all nations of God's arm working salvation. And yet it is in the disfigured face of this servant. The rhetorical question is quite just. Who would believe that the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Who would believe? Now the origins of the servant are also unimpressive. If you look down at 53 verse 2, he does not have the pomp and pageantry that heralds a royal birth. But instead he is like a little plant or a fragile sapling that comes out of dry ground. Very unimpressive. He bears no likeness to a king. He has no attractive appeal. Instead, according to verse 3, it is the exact opposite. He is despised and rejected by men. In fact, if you look at verse 3, the word despised is re repeated twice at the beginning and end to emphasize. And sandwiched between these two uses, the despised servant is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
Now this description is very important and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it. The word for grief in verse 3 is used 22 times in the Old Testament. And actually it is more commonly translated as sickness. For example, King Hezekiah, if you flick back a couple of chapters, was suffering from a sickness. However, the most interesting use of the word is in Deuteronomy 28, when it is used twice together to describe the curses that the Lord would bring upon Israel if they disobeyed his covenant. We looked at Deuteronomy 28 before, and I'm going to read it to you again now. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law, then the Lord will bring upon you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting, every sickness also, and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Now this raises an obvious question. Why is the servant of the Lord suffering the sickness and the grief that is the consequence the direct consequence of covenant disobedience. Why is the servant being punished as a covenant breaker? The answer comes in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs or our sicknesses and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. According to Isaiah, the servant has griefs and sicknesses because he bears the sickness of Israel. The servant has sorrows because he carries the sorrows of Israel. And yet it is because of this suffering and sickness that Israel regards the servant as being smitten or struck by God. Is he suffering the consequence of his own sin if God is punishing him? No, absolutely not. Verse 5 utterly dispels this notion by repeating the same idea in four parallel lines in case we are so foolish as to miss it. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah is very clear. The servant is enduring suffering, and he is enduring the punishment for covenant disobedience. But it is not for his own disobedience that he suffers, nor for his own transgression or iniquity. 
but for the transgressions and iniquities of God's people. The servant suffers in their place. This is the heart of the doctrine of penal substitution. The word penal means penalty or punishment, like the penal code. And the word substitute means to take the place of another. So the servant of the Lord is presented as a penal substitute. He endures the punishment that is due to others. And this is highlighted by the repeated and emphatic use of personal pronouns, which is even more emphatic in the Hebrew. He, him, us, our, etc. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He continues in verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. The servant suffers the punishment of covenant breakers. And it is the Lord God himself who is the principal actor in laying the punishment upon the servant. Yet God does not act unjustly towards his servant. If you look at verse 7, actually the servant is a willing participant. Although he is afflicted for guilt that is not his own, and for people who revile and hate him, he does not open his mouth in protest. He does not argue for his own innocence or attack the justice of God. Even though he had done no violence, nor is there any deceit in his mouth, but instead he is silent, like a sheep being led to the slaughter. The servant is a willing participant in the purpose of God. And verse 8, that is in stark contrast with the people that he is saving. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? The people are not willing participants in God's purposes at all. Instead, they are entirely ignorant of God's design and even condemn the servant unjustly and make his grave with the wicked. Yet there is a resounding note of triumph in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The ignorant and unjust murder of the servant by sinful man does not thwart the purpose of God at all, but actually precisely fulfills those purposes. And just as it was the will of the Lord that crushed the servant, it is the will of the Lord that shall ultimately prosper in his hand. 
the servant will live to see the nation for whom he has been made a guilt offering. Um, does anyone want to summarize what we've seen before? What is, what is Isaiah saying up to this point? God will send his servant to save Israel, okay? Why does it have to be the servant? Why does it have to be the servant? What's the context? Because mankind cannot save themselves, and specifically because Israel is disqualified. Right? Why is Israel disqualified? What's the reason? Okay, they were in covenant with God. The covenant was they would obey and be blessed, or they would disobey and be cursed. They disobeyed, and so they were cursed. So they are disqualified from being God's means of salvation. And so actually they need a savior. And the savior is the servant figure. The servant is despised and rejected by men, and yet somehow, inexplicably, he is actually the arm of the Lord coming to save his people. And how is he going to save his people? Well, he's going to save his people by being a penal substitute. He is going to bear the penalty of Israel in their case. In their place, sorry. Okay, so I think that's where we've got up to. Uh, also, the servant is a willing participant in the... In, in, in being a penal substitute, it's not like God has zapped him and said, ah, I'm just, bam, okay, and now Israel, you're in the clear. No, no, the servant is sent, he's a willing participant, the Lord lays the sins of his people upon him, uh, and yet the people are in no way an active participant in this, the only activity they do is in, is in willfully killing the servant in a way that is sinful, okay? So the, the people are, are not, not active. Uh, or not active in a good way. So let us resume. Um, let us resume with verse 11. Okay? So, just as it was the will of the Lord that crushed the servant, it's the will of the Lord that will ultimately prosper in his hand. The servant will live to see the nation for whom he has been made a guilt offering in verse 10. It's out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Well, this is really quite something. Okay, the servant who is righteous will make the many unrighteous to be accounted as or to be considered as righteous. The righteous servant will make the unrighteous nation to be considered as righteous. And notice that this runs immediately parallel in verse 11 to bearing their iniquities. He will make many to be accounted righteous, he shall bear their iniquities. The two run parallel together. It's a twofold transaction which in Reformed theology is called the doctrine of imputation. That is, the servant has the iniquity of the people imputed to him. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And in turn, 
the servant imputes his righteousness to the people. The people have no claim to any righteousness of their own, but only wrath. The righteousness that they have is what Martin Luther would have called alien righteousness. By alien, I just mean it doesn't belong to them. It's not E.T., right? Alien, it is something that is gifted to them. Okay? So this is what's happening to the servant. Here you've got, again, God made a covenant with his people at Sinai. The people deserve curse, but the servant, by his obedience, deserves blessing. But what happens? The servant suffers curse in their place. Imputation. By this, the righteous servant suffers the curse of the unrighteous. The unrighteous people are accounted as righteous and receive the blessing that is due to the servant. This is at the heart of the gospel. Now notice carefully that the people have done absolutely nothing in this chapter, with the exception of contributing their own foolishness and iniquity. They are not an active party, except in despising the servant and making his grave with the wicked. Do you notice that? They made his grave with the wicked. Actually, they are culpable for his death. In all of this, the active party is the Lord God who sends his servant, who lays the iniquity of the people upon the servant, who crushes the servant, and second, the servant who willingly submits to the will of the Lord and willingly bears the sin of the unrighteous. Therefore, the righteousness that is accounted to the people is not merited by them, it's not merited by the people, but it is merited by the servant instead. It is the substitutionary death of the servant that merits him the right to have a righteous people as his own possession. If you want to talk about merit at all within salvation, it is the servant who is pointing to Christ who has merited a people. You don't merit anything. He has merited you. Now this means that the righteous standing of sinful people before God is merited not by the merit of those people but by the merit of their saviour. And this is why the Lord will abundantly reward the servant in verse 12. The final four lines give the reason for this reward, which runs in two parallel pairs. Firstly, he'll divide, you know, so the reward is, I will divide him a portion with the many, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death, and that runs parallel with, he bore the sin of many, and he was numbered with the transgressors, which runs parallel to making intercession for those transgressors. Okay, so verse 12, the explanation is two sets of parallel lines, A, B, A, B. Okay? Now, we're just going to stop for a second. Where does this head? Well, this obviously heads, doesn't it, directly, immediately to Christ. 
This is, this is directly talking about Christ. There are many ways that we see this, right? Christ is perfectly innocent when he suffers. Christ spends much of his time before his crucifixion explaining his death. You notice in the crucifixion narratives, it's not like Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson spends like three hours going into all of the torture and all the whipping and how horrible crucifixion is. The gospel writers don't do that. They say, and they crucified him. And they spend all of their time explaining what the theological meaning of that is, which is Jesus is bearing the wrath that is due to covenant breakers. And Jesus spends time explaining that before his death. We could go. He is numbered with the transgressors. But there are two ways of many that I will pick out. First is Romans 3.21. If we're talking about righteousness, now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed that is separate from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, for example, in this chapter. And this is the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the righteousness of God, which cannot be achieved through the law because we are all covenant breakers, is gifted to us, is given to us by grace through faith in Christ. That is the means by which we access his righteousness. And the reason that Paul goes on to explain is because he was made a sacrifice of atonement. There are loads of verses you can pick up. I'm just going to pick up two. The next one is in 2 Corinthians 5:21. For our sake, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin, to be sin, he who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the exchange? We are unrighteous. Christ is righteous. Christ takes our sin. He becomes sin in order that we may become the righteousness of God in him. It is imputational. The final point. I want to talk about uh, 53 verse 12. Because I think this is really significant. This actually ties up everything. And it's often missed. If we want to accomplish anything in life, we need to have an established purpose and we need to have a means to attain that purpose. So, Tsingwei wants to get really, really good A-level results. What does he do? He reads his book, he studies hard, he does his homework. His goal is to get the A, his means is studying. Well, let's say I have a purpose, I am the actor. My purpose is to please my wife. The means in which I did that, I genuinely did this, was I bought her a dictionary for her birthday one day. There's a backstory to that, which we won't go into, but I thought that that would please my wife. Now, that was my purpose, and that did not work. The result was a displeased wife. Okay? Now, we can try that, right? Zingwei could study really, really hard, and yet he could fail. Now, that is never the case with God. God's purpose is exactly the same thing as the result. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God unfailingly accomplishes that for which he intended. So God, purpose, purpose, he creates, 
His name is Ice, 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 and, and, Orzal, 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 Everything, everything, perfect, perfect. So, when God purposed to create the world, he did so by the means of his son, who perfectly performed the task and produced exactly what he intended. And exactly the same way, when God purposed to save people from every nation, to when God desired to save his church, he does so through his son. And his son fully achieves his intended purpose. He fully achieves it. There's no shade of doubt in the success of the son. He will see his offspring. He will divide the spoil with the strong. Christ did not go to the cross uncertain about his reward. Look at verse 12 at the end. He bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The work of Christ did not end at his objective work in being the penal substitute. It did not end at the cross. But in his risen and ascended and exalted capacity, he sends his spirit to apply all of the benefits of his death and his righteousness to the transgressors by interceding for them. That is, the objective merit of the death of Christ is then gifted to us through his intercessory work, through the person of the Holy Spirit. God, Jesus doesn't die and then ascend and then we're kind of left, okay, well, Jesus died, but how are sinful people connected to that? It's like laying a medicine upon a coffin. You know, the medicine might be really, really good medicine, but there's no way of connecting you to it. No, Christ dies and then links us to all of the benefits of his death. He has achieved every part of our salvation. There is no work, no part of God's work of our salvation that is contingent upon the autonomy of sinful man, but solely upon the work of God in Christ. Every part of your salvation has been worked out by God and is a gift of his grace. Now that should astonish and astound us. When God sent his son into the world, he ordained to, pay, to place the punishment of the sin of his church upon him. Christ willingly died for his church, and then in his ascended capacity, he sends his spirit that the church may be united to all of that benefit. That the church might actually be saved. You are saved by God. Here's the summary of Isaiah 53. God accomplishes the salvation of his people through his servant. God does this through the penal substitution of his servant. The servant bears their sin and they receive his righteousness. God applies the benefits to, the, to his people by the interceding work 
of his exalted servant. And the way the intercession works in Christ, okay, so God accomplishes the salvation of his people through his true servant, Jesus. God does this through the penal substitution of Jesus. Jesus bears our sin. We receive his righteousness. And God applies these benefits to us by the interceding work of the ascended Jesus through his spirit. It is the spirit who gives us faith through which we receive God's righteousness. Right? The righteousness that is revealed by faith, faith is a gift of the Spirit. And the Son has sent his Spirit to his church. So in all of these things, Isaiah 53 is magnifying the glory of God in salvation. He has purposed to save a church, and he has absolutely, and will be absolutely demonstrated, to have accomplished that aim. And there is nothing that you or I could ever have contributed to that. But we are solely beneficiaries of his grace. And so we should trust in our Father and trust in his Son and be thankful for what he has done. Shall we pray?